How did a song written by two New Yorkers, inspired by a visit to a bar in New Orleans, and first recorded by a band from LA, become the official rock song of the state of Ohio? It's an interesting story, and it actually begins and ends in the Buckeye State. Dorothy Sloop was born in Steubenville, Ohio in 1913, and learned to play piano when she was just a kid. By the time she was six, she was performing in local theaters, and even performed alongside Steubenville's most famous son, Dean Martin. She moved to New York in her late teens and began playing in a jazz quartet. Her love of jazz eventually led her to its birthplace, the Big Easy, New Orleans. One night, she was performing at the Dixie Bar on Bourbon Street, and two songwriters from New York, Wes Farrell and Burt Burns, were in attendance. It wasn't the best night for Dorothy Sloop, and she was visibly flustered. One of the patrons, in a show of support, shouted a line which would soon enter the music lexicon and stay there. He cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted, Hang on, Sloopy! Hang on! Inspired by this quote, but not necessarily the woman it was directed towards, Wes and Bert went back to New York and wrote a song called My Girl Sloopy. My Girl Sloopy was recorded in 1964 by the LA-based band The Vibrations. It did well and went to number 26 on the charts. The following year, a band called The Strange Loves wanted to cover the song. Their big hit, I Want Candy, was still on the charts though, and they didn't want to compete with themselves. They were playing a show in Dayton, and they convinced their opening act, Rick and the Raiders, to do My Girl Sloopy with them on stage. The song went over really well, and the Strange Loves brought Rick and the Raiders back to New York City with them, and got them to record the cover instead. Rick and the Raiders was led by Rick Zaringer and his brother Randy, who were both from Fort Recovery, Ohio. The song was recorded on Bang Records. Rick Zaringer changed his name to Rick Derringer, and so as not to be confused with Paul Revere and the Raiders, the record was released under the band name The McCoys. Oh, and one more thing. Instead of My Girl Sloopy, it was released instead as Hang On Sloopy. The song was a hit. Released in mid-August, it climbed to number one by the beginning of October. After the song's release, a student and marching band member at Ohio State University named John Tagenhorst heard it over the loudspeaker at the Ohio State Fair. He convinced the band leader to let him try an arrangement of the song with the marching band that fall. Exactly one week after Hang On Sloopy hit number one on the charts, the Ohio State marching band debuted it on the field. The game that day was against Illinois, and the date was October 9, 1965. That was the first game that Ohio State fans heard the band play Hang On Sloopy. They've heard it at every game since. You'll often hear the song played during Ohio professional sports games as well. Flash forward to 1985. Columnist Joe Dirk of the Columbus Citizen Journal wrote a column about how Washington State was considering adopting a state rock song. Since Cleveland was lobbying hard to be the permanent site of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Ohio General Assembly passed House Concurrent Resolution Number 16, which stated the following. Whereas, 
Rock music has become an integral part of American culture, having attained a degree of acceptance no one would have thought possible 20 years ago. And, whereas adoption of Hang On Sloopy as the official rock song of Ohio is in no way intended to supplant Beautiful Ohio as the official state song, but would serve as a companion piece to that old chestnut. And, whereas if fans of jazz, country and western, classical, Hawaiian, and polka music think those styles should also be recognized by the state, then by golly, they can push their own resolution, just like we're doing. And, whereas Hang On Sloopy is of particular relevance to members of the baby boom generation, who were once dismissed as a bunch of long-haired crazy kids, but who now are old enough and vote in sufficient numbers to be taken quite seriously. And, whereas adoption of this resolution will not take too long, cost the state anything, or affect the quality of life in this state to any appreciable degree. And if we in the legislature just go ahead and pass the darn thing, we can get on with more important stuff. And whereas Sloopy lives in a very bad part of town, and everybody, yeah, tries to put my Sloopy down. And whereas Sloopy, I don't care what your daddy do, because you know Sloopy girl, I'm in love with you. Therefore, be it resolved that we, the members of the 116th General Assembly of Ohio, in adopting this resolution, name Hang On Sloopy as the official rock song of the state of Ohio. Unfortunately, when the General Assembly's term expired in 1986, their concurrent resolution expired with it, and Ohio would return to the ranks of the other 49 states, none of which have official rock songs. In March of 2015, the Ohio House voted 82 to 13 to re-recognize Hang On Sloopy as the permanent official rock song of the state. Sadly, that bill died in the Senate, but you never know what the future holds. So all I can say is, hang on, Sloopy. Sloopy, hang on. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be back with you today. It's been a while since our last episode, for which I apologize, but it's been a busy summer out here on the road. To see where I've been hiding and what I've been up to, be sure you visit my blog at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. You can also follow along on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. Over the last few weeks, I've been enjoying beautiful Southern Ohio. I spent a nice chunk of time in Athens County for Brew Week, and then made my way along the Ohio River west to Cincinnati. I really loved Cincinnati with its grand architecture and beautiful murals. From there, I headed north to Dayton and then made my way back east to Columbus. As I've been crisscrossing the Buckeye State to find the stories I'm going to share with you today, I've found a lot of surprises around every corner. I was surprised to learn that between 1869 and 1923, 
Seven native Ohioans served as president of the United States. The actual number of years in office during that time frame would be longer had not three of them died or been killed in office. I've also been fascinated by Ohio's ties to air and space. While of course the Wright brothers built their first airplane in Dayton, Ohio, I did not know that both John Glenn, the first American to orbit Earth, and Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, were native Ohioans. In addition, Robert Overmeyer from Lorain, Ohio, was the pilot on the first operational flight of the space shuttle. Sunita Williams from Euclid, Ohio, holds the record for most cumulative spacewalk time by a female astronaut. And Akron's Judy Resnick was the first Jewish American in space, who sadly lost her life in the Challenger disaster. In addition, I've loved finding connections back to this podcast as pieces of the puzzle start to fit into the big picture. For example, William Howard Taft, who I featured in episode one, was born in Cincinnati and became president by defeating William Jennings Bryan, one of the lawyers in the Scopes trial from episode eight. The other lawyer in that trial was Clarence Darrow. His hometown, Kinsman, Ohio. When the Black Sox scandal from Episode 7 erupted, Shoeless Joe and his teammates were up against the Cincinnati Reds. And while they were busy enriching uranium at Oak Ridge in Episode 8, the triggering devices for the Manhattan Project were being developed in Miamisburg, Ohio. In short, it's been a great and interesting few weeks, and I look forward to the rest of the time I will spend here in the Buckeye State. Music for this episode comes from the amazingly talented Ohio singer-songwriter Megan B. Not only did I get to meet Megan during my time in Athens, where she is based, but we went on a long hike together around the ridges, too. You can download her music from iTunes and find out more about her and where you can see her play at her website, meganbemusic.com. M-E-G-A-N-B-E-E music.com. So let's get right into it today, as we finally get to the long-awaited Episode 10 of American Anthology. I hope you enjoy these stories from Southern Ohio. Rusted out late 70s Ford Reminding me what the bench seat's for And I got a foot on the dash, got a foot on the floor of a rusted out late 70s Ford hey, hey, hey. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe Ann Mosey was born August 13th, 1860 in a small cabin near the town of Willowdell in Dark County, Ohio. She was the sixth of nine children born to Quaker parents who had migrated from Pennsylvania. When Phoebe was six, her father caught pneumonia on his way home from work and died soon thereafter. Her mother remarried and had one more child, but her second husband would die unexpectedly as well. When she was seven, Phoebe began trapping small game for food. At eight, she took her daddy's gun down from the wall and took aim at a squirrel across her yard. Her first shot, she later recalled, was also one of her best. She hit the squirrel in the head, leaving all the meat of the body intact. Despite her efforts, though, her mother sent her and her sister Sarah to live at the Dark County Infirmary, which doubled as the local poor farm. 
the girls learned to sew and maintain a house there. At 10, Phoebe was bound out to a local family. In exchange for working around the house and helping care for their infant son, she was supposed to receive 50 cents a week plus room, board, and an education. The reality was starkly different. For the next two years, she suffered tremendous physical and mental abuse. She was locked in the closet, beaten so badly she got welts, and once, when she fell asleep at her darning, she was cast out barefoot into the snowy night. In later years, she never spoke the names of her tormentors and referred to them only as the wolves. When she was 12, Phoebe had had enough. She stowed away on a train and made her way back home. While her mother had remarried a third time, she was still too poor to care for Phoebe, who ended up back at the poor farm working as a seamstress. At 15, she finally returned home and immediately began hunting again to help put food on the table. Hunting came naturally to Phoebe, and she was soon bagging enough to sell some to the local grocers. When she found out that they were, in turn, selling it to restaurants in Cincinnati, she decided to cut out the middleman. Soon, she was providing quail, rabbit, turkey, and deer meat to some of the finest restaurants in town. Her prowess as a hunter was well known throughout the region. Soon, she had paid off her mother's mortgage with her hunting revenue. On Thanksgiving Day, 1875, the Ballman and Butler show came into town. Frank Butler, one of the stars of the show, was a renowned sharpshooter and often took side bets that he could outshoot anyone. A local hotel owner took his bet, and I'm sure you can imagine Frank Butler's surprise when his challenger walked in the door, a five-foot, hundred-pound, fifteen-year-old girl. He laughed, but wasn't laughing when she beat him 25 shots to 24. You see, Phoebe Ann Mosey never missed a shot. Instead of being upset, though, young Frank Butler was smitten. They married a year later and stayed married for the next 50 years. For the next six years, Phoebe traveled with Frank's show, but stayed very much in the background. That is, until one fateful night in Springfield, Ohio, when Frank's partner was too sick to perform. Phoebe took his place, holding the targets and working the crowd. But something was just off that night. Frank kept missing, and over all the booing and hissing, someone shouted, Let the girl shoot! When Phoebe picked up that gun, she hit, as she always did, everything she shot at. It was that night that Frank realized she should be the star of the show, and their roles were forever reversed. The rest, as they say, is history. She went on to become the first real nationwide female superstar. In fact, she became a worldwide sensation, performing for the President, the Queen of England, the King of Italy, and the Tsar of Russia. She shot the ashes off the tip of a cigarette held in the mouth of Kaiser Wilhelm. She was friends with Thomas Edison and the great chief Sitting Bull. When she performed, she donned Western wear, buckskins and fringes, and was almost always seen with her trusty rifle. Who would have thought that the most famous cowgirl, perhaps in all of American history, was really a poor farm girl from Western Ohio? You know her. I know you do. Only, you know her by the name she adopted after that fateful night in Springfield. The name she chose was that of her paternal grandmother. 
You know her as Annie Oakley. She said you fit me like a glove. He said you fit me like a mitten. They ain't always been in love. But tonight they're feeling smitten. It's been 53 years since they walked down the aisle. In the 1880s, Cincinnati had grown to become the largest inland city in the country, with a population approaching 300,000. It was a major industrial city, with an economy based on iron production, meatpacking, textiles, and woodworking. It was also a corrupt and dangerous city, with a high crime rate. A slew of murders had taken place, leading one local newspaper to refer to Cincinnati as the College of Murder. By March of 1884, 23 indicted murderers were awaiting trial in the city jail, and the people of Cincinnati were growing increasingly frustrated with the lack of action. It was in this already charged environment that the verdict came down for a man named William Burner. Burner had been accused of laying in wait one night for his employer, who he knew often carried large sums of cash with him. Burner had jumped his boss, and for $285, he hammered in the man's skull, strangled him to death, and dumped his body in Mill Creek. Seven credible witnesses had testified at the trial that Burner had admitted to them that he had done it. And yet, when the jury returned with its verdict, they found Burner guilty of the lesser crime of manslaughter. The judge in the case called the verdict, quote, a damned outrage as he sentenced Burner to the 20-year maximum for the lesser crime. The citizens of Cincinnati were furious, and the papers called for a public meeting the next day to condemn the verdict. The next day, March 27, 1884, thousands of angry citizens convened at the Cincinnati Music Hall. Community leaders tried and failed to maintain order. A mob mentality had set in, and at 9.30 p.m., the group marched six blocks to the jail with the intention of lynching William Burner. Unbeknownst to them, Burner had already been moved to the state penitentiary in Columbus. As they approached, Hamilton County Sheriff Morton Hawkins, who along with 13 deputies was guarding the jail, sounded the riot alarm. The mob quickly overwhelmed the jail's defenders and searched the jail for Burner. When they didn't find him, they turned to go and ran head-on into police and state militia who were responding to the alarm. Rocks were thrown. Guns fired, and when the smoke cleared, three citizens, one police officer, and three militiamen had been shot. The jail was cleared, as was the street. Saturday morning, the Cincinnati Inquirer's headline screamed, At last, the people are aroused and take the law into their own hands. Engaged community rises in its might. Sheriff Hawkins, fearing more violence to come, called for reinforcements. While 200 officers responded and built barricades around the jail, he asked Governor Hoadley to send more militia from other parts of the state. Hoadley mobilized several units and then stalled. Cincinnati was a big town, and he was afraid he would lose their votes. Finally, at 5 p.m., he decided to send the militia. Back in Cincinnati, the situation was quickly deteriorating. Adding fuel to the fire, that Saturday was payday, and many citizens spent the day in the pubs around town, discussing the verdict and the events of the previous night. 
As day turned into night, hundreds of angry, drunk Cincinnatians once again took to the streets. Finding the jail barricaded and heavily defended, they turned their anger towards the courthouse, which had set them off in the first place. They broke into the treasurer's office and set it on fire. The fire brigade was called in, but the mob kept them from reaching the blaze. The courthouse was engulfed in flames and burned long and unhindered into the night. At 9.30 p.m., the Dayton militia reached Cincinnati, but couldn't get to the jail. At 10.30, 425 members of the Columbus militia arrived, pulling a Gatlin gun behind them. They marched to the jail and cleared the area, but not before 10 of their men had been shot. Looting and vandalism began to spread through the city and continued late into the night. Snipers took positions atop nearby buildings and harassed the police and militia defending the jail. And through it all, the courthouse continued to burn. By Sunday morning, a pile of ash and rubble was all that remained. Governor Hoadley had, by then, ordered 2,000 militia and 50,000 rounds of ammunition to Cincinnati and sent Adjutant General Ebenezer Finley to assume command. Bars were closed and armed patrols marched through the streets. One more major skirmish occurred in front of the jail, but the Gatling gun was simply too much to overcome. By Monday morning, when Cincinnatians returned to work, 45 people had been killed and another 175 had been wounded, making the courthouse riots, as they would come to be called, one of the most deadly in the history of the country. In the aftermath, the Commercial Gazette published an editorial stating, quote, The time has come for taking an account for three days of destruction and terror. First, we have saved our jail full of murderers. We have killed 45 innocent men and wounded or maimed many more, all to save our jail full of murderers. End quote. Harper's Weekly took it a step further, blaming the riots on the fact that intelligent citizens had ceded politics to corrupt politicians and stated that if middle-class Americans were running government instead of corrupt special interests, incidents like the riots would not occur. Sound familiar? Some good came from the riots, though. Cincinnati got a federally appointed supervisor to oversee their elections. A special committee was formed to try and deal with the corruption in town, and a young local man, right out of law school, was chosen to head a committee to reform local criminal law. That young man was a good choice. He would grow up to be President of the United States and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and is buried in Arlington Cemetery right outside my hometown of Washington, D.C. That man was William Howard Taft. This episode is a tough one to interpret. On the one hand, I don't support rioting of any kind. On the other, People can only be pushed so far until something like this is inevitable. If we the people cannot somehow manage to wrestle the government back from the corporate greed and special interests behind the curtains on both sides of the aisle, then it's only just a matter of time. And then, God help us all. You've heard me say it before, and you will hear me say it again. We must learn from our history, or we will be destined to repeat it.
The town of Portsmouth rests comfortably on the banks of the Ohio River. In 1928, it was an up-and-coming industrial town with an economy based on steel, shoes, and paving bricks. They also had a semi-pro football team in town called the Portsmouth Spartans. The local population loved their team and thought they were good enough to join the then eight-year-old National Football League. Their petition was denied, but they persisted and built a beautiful new stadium, Universal Stadium, which sat 8,200 fans. In 1929, the Spartans were scheduled to play two regional games against NFL teams, though. One against the Minneapolis Red Jackets, and one against the defending NFL champion Green Bay Packers. These were supposed to be exhibition games for the pro teams, but the Packers barely beat the Spartans, who would go 12-2-1 that year. NFL commissioner John Carr didn't want the NFL to lose its clout, so when Portsmouth submitted a new petition to join the league the following year, it was granted. Portsmouth got its NFL team and became the second smallest market in the league, second only to Green Bay. The Spartans played their first pro game on September 14, 1930, beating the Newark Tornadoes 13-6. Their second game, 10 days later versus the Brooklyn Dodgers, was played under the floodlights at Universal Stadium, the first scheduled night game in NFL history. The Spartans won. In their next two games, they tied the Chicago Cardinals and beat the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. While the season started well, the Spartans lost six of their next eight games and finished the season 5-6-3. and three. Before the 1931 season, the Spartans signed a young quarterback named Earl Harry Clark, nicknamed Dutch. Dutch Clark led the Spartans to an 11-3 season, with one game left to play against the 12-2 Green Bay Packers. The Packers claimed the game had only been a tentative game and refused to play. Without playing that December game, the Packers were named the champions, and the Spartans had to settle for second place. At the end of the 1932 season, Green Bay was once again atop the league, with a 10-1-1 record and two games left to play one against the 5-1-6 Chicago Bears, and one against the 5-1-4 Portsmouth Spartans. It needs to be stated here that at the time, ties were not counted and standings were based on win-loss percentage, so Green Bay had a 9.09 average to the Bears and Spartans matching 8.33s. The Spartans played the pack first, and Spartans coach Potsy Clark stated before the game he only planned to use the 11 players he started the game with and would make no substitutions regardless of injury. This game, dubbed the Iron Man game, was a grueling contest, but the Spartans ended up winning 19 to nothing. The Bears beat the Packers the following week, and the NFL faced a conundrum. Both the Bears and the Spartans had an 857 average, and their two head-to-head games had both ended in a tie. A one-game playoff was scheduled for December 18th at Wrigley Field in Chicago, the first playoff game in league history. Blizzards rocked Chicago that winter, and by game day, Wrigley Field was simply too cold and snowy to play on. The game was moved to Chicago Stadium, home of the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team. The enclosed playing area was only 60 yards long, goal line to goal line, and 45 yards wide. Also, the circus had just left town, so the playing surface was hard-packed dirt. Piles of manure were everywhere, which caused several players to vomit during the game. 
The hockey boards didn't allow for the ball to be placed where it was called down, so they came up with a series of hash marks, which would be used from that game forward. In addition to all of these challenges, the Spartans were also missing their star quarterback. Dutch Clark couldn't play. He had to go back to his regular job as the head basketball coach at the Colorado College of Mines. Times were different back then. The game was a 0-0 gridlock through three quarters, but in the fourth, the Bears got a touchdown and a safety and emerged a 9-0 champion. To add insult to injury, this game was counted into the regular season standings, so the Spartans dropped to third place behind Green Bay. The Spartans would go 6-5-0, finishing in fourth place in 1933. The Great Depression hit industrial Portsmouth hard that year, and ticket sales fell through the floor. In their four years in the NFL, the Portsmouth Spartans had managed an 851 average with a 27-16-7 record. They had challenged for the championship twice, but in those difficult times, nothing could save them. 1933 would be their last year in Portsmouth. The team moved, but kept most of its roster intact. Dutch Clark, who did not play in their last season in Portsmouth, returned to the team in 1934. In 1963, he would be one of 17 players inducted into the inaugural class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame across the state in Canton, Ohio. In 1935, Dutch led the league with 55 points and defeated the New York Giants 26-7 in the championship game. And oh, how the people in Portsmouth cheered they had finally gotten their championship win. But I'm sure it was bittersweet, because that win? That win was recorded not by the Spartans, but under their new name, the name we know them as today, the Detroit Lions. Color me like a cottonwood tree On the driest days right before the monsoon Color me like a cottonwood tree Looking brittle and broken But I'm just waiting for the right amount of rain to bloom None of us are born with a name. But the baby boy who would grow up to found one of Ohio's best-known businesses didn't get his name until he was six weeks old. You see, when he was born on July 2nd, 1932, his mother knew she was going to put him up for adoption, so she left his name up to his adoptive parents. When he was adopted by Rex and Oliva Thomas at six weeks old, he finally got his name. He was named after his adoptive father, Rex Thomas. When young Rex was five, his adoptive mother died, and Rex and Rex were on their own. They bounced around from city to city, and while they didn't spend much quality time together, they usually did eat together. In their situation, this generally meant sitting side by side at a lunch counter. Since his father wasn't much of a talker, young Rex spent his time studying the restaurants and how they looked and how they worked, how the cooks cooked and how the waitresses talked to their customers. Rex loved hamburgers and dreamed of owning his own restaurant someday where he could eat as many hamburgers as he wanted. At 10, Rex started working as a paper boy. He would also work as a caddy, a grocery delivery boy, 
and even a pin setter at the local bowling alley. But finally, when he was 12, he got his big break as a busboy at the Regis restaurant in Knoxville, Tennessee. When he and his father moved again, this time to Fort Wayne, Indiana, Rex got a job working at the Hobby House. When Rex was 15, his father was ready to move again, but Rex was done with all of that. He dropped out of school, took a room at the YMCA, and went to work full-time at the restaurant. Rex was 18 when the Korean War broke out, and instead of waiting to be drafted, he enlisted and followed his passion to the Army Cooks and Bakers School at Fort Benning, Georgia. Instead of Korea, Rex found himself in Germany, where he would eventually end up managing the Enlisted Men's Club. Two and a half years passed before Rex returned home to Fort Wayne and his job at the Hobby House. While he was gone, his boss had invested in a new franchise opportunity called Kentucky Fried Chicken. With his military and management skills, his boss wanted to send Rex to Columbus, Ohio to take over four KFC stores, which weren't doing so well. In exchange, Rex would get 40% ownership. Rex jumped at the chance and headed to Ohio, where he did turn those stores around. He did so well, in fact, that he would end up selling his shares in those stores several years later for $1.5 million. Rex went on to serve as regional manager for Kentucky Fried Chicken. And a few years later, he would help found Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. During those years, he undoubtedly ate a lot of chicken and a lot of fish. But one thing he never seemed to be able to find in Columbus was a decent burger. Not one like he used to eat as a kid, sitting at the lunch counter next to his dad. So finally, Rex decided to open his own restaurant where he could eat all the hamburgers he wanted. And on November 15, 1969, he opened the first restaurant that was all his at 257 East Broad Street in Columbus. He named the place after his eight-year-old daughter, Melinda Lou, and it has grown to become the third biggest fast food chain in the world. But it's not called Melinda's. You see, when Melinda was eight and still in pigtails, she herself had trouble pronouncing her own name. Melinda came out as Wenda. To simplify it for the rest of us, when Rex Dave Thomas founded his hamburger chain in Columbus, Ohio, he called it, of course, Wendy's. Well, we went to the kitchen, what was there? Opened up the cupboard, but the cupboard was bare. All we found were the tortoise and the hare, a little bear cub and a broken chair. Oh, Mary, Mary, why can't How can this all be? I called from a pipe and I called from a bowl, but nobody brought it to me. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute to rate and review the show. From here, I'm off into northern Ohio, so tune in next time for more stories from the Buckeye State. To follow along, please check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Follow me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at miles 2 go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks to our musical guest today, the lovely and talented Megan B. 
You can find the songs you heard today on iTunes. And to find out more about Megan and where to hear her play next, visit her website, meganbmusic.com. That's M-E-G-A-N-B-E-E-Music.com. As always, thanks go to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com and the wonderful folks at FreeSFX.com for background music and sound effects. And, of course, our theme music comes from the late, great Memphis Slim. Have a great couple of weeks out there, wherever you are, and I hope to catch you somewhere down the road. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Until next time, keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.